Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are listening to the Nighttime Podcast. Hello, listeners. Tonight, I'm going to represent a story that I first covered on this show several years ago. If you're listening to this episode now, upon its release, this is the eighth anniversary of the senseless tragedy. The story of Rohini Bissasar is a case I followed closely since the news broke of a manhunt taking place across Toronto. Initial reports told of a seemingly random stabbing taking place in Toronto's financial district in the middle of the day and within the aisles of a shopper's drug mart. In the days after the attack, while the young victim barely clung to life, the city was captivated for the manhunt for the well-dressed woman's security cameras captured fleeing the store. At around 3 Friday afternoon, a woman in her late 20s is shopping inside this drugstore in Toronto's underground concourse, when according to police, a complete stranger allegedly walks up to her and stabs her, and now she's fighting for her life in hospital. Based on uh, what I've seen from the images and what I know from the detectives, a completely unprovoked attack on an unsuspecting woman. Uh, piercing a vital organ where that woman remains in grave condition. Police say this is a random attack and are looking for this woman. 40-year-old Rohini Bissasar wanted for attempted murder. In December of 2015, when word of a stabbing in a shopper's drug mart within Toronto's financial district spread, Canadians were surprised by the brazen nature of the attack, but I can only assume many found comfort in a reasonable belief that the incident was related to some type of personal feud between two rival financial sector employees. However, as police shared additional details, the story only became more bizarre and a more troubling set of circumstances were revealed. For many following the case, the most complete picture of what occurred came in the form of an article titled, What Happened to Rohini Bissasar, that was published by the well-known lifestyle magazine, Toronto Life. In this article, Toronto-based freelance journalist, Razel Robin, provided the result of her months-long investigation into Rohini's life. And when I began planning my coverage of this story, my first step was to invite Razel to take part. That said, before we really get started here, let me introduce you to her. You're going to be hearing a lot from her in this episode. My name's Razel Robbins. I live in Toronto, Ontario, and I started writing probably 20 years ago now as a magazine writer. And um, I worked for Canadian Business Magazine and some other magazines, and then eventually left to have some kids and started up freelancing in probably 2013 and then had always kind of wanted to write about a crime story or just do some some crime reporting and then I really got my chance when this one came along so um, I heard about it just like everybody else did really in Toronto uh, over the news and this would have been December 2015 Um, basically Rohini Bisesar was um, wanted by police in connection with a murder of Rosemary Junior, and they had released a bunch of uh, photos of Rohini um, to the public, trying to find her. They were trying to locate her. So I saw her photo on TV. I watched the story unfolding, 
and I knew people in uh, Bay Street community, and uh, so I started talking to them. And it wasn't long before I found people who were who knew her, who had seen her in the bars and restaurants, and um, you know, who, people who had networked with her. So it was fairly easy to find people fairly quickly who would talk talk to me about her. And with the introduction out of the way, let me get into it. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, I'm going to be using portions of my conversation with Razel Robin to share the bizarre story of Rohini Bissasar. Police say Bissasar is not known to them, but say she is considered violent and dangerous. It's certainly scary that someone's walking around stabbing people randomly. I figure the best way to begin this narrative is by following the footsteps of the victim, Rosemary Junar. As unusual as the story is going to become, the person it all falls down on, Mrs. Junor, didn't stand out in any way at all as far as risk was concerned. A regular person leading a regular, respectable life. Rosemary was a young woman, probably late 20s. She was just married. Uh, she was beautiful, stylish. She liked to have her hair and nails done just right. She was a perfectionist. She worked at a private medical clinic called MedCan here in Toronto. It's in the downtown core. A lot of finance types go there to get their arteries scanned or, you know, health checkups, whatever you can get with all the bells and whistles there. Um, she was an ultrasound technician there, and she was a coordinator at the clinic, and she was the only person qualified to run this particular machine that would scan the carotid artery for signs of plaque buildup, and she had recently been promoted. So... Really, she was a successful young woman at the prime of her life. On December 11th of 2015, Rosemary's day was shaping up to be unremarkable in nearly every way. Were it not for what would happen to her that afternoon, this day would simply blend in with any other weekday spent toiling away at her medical office, tying up loose ends, and anxiously awaiting the upcoming Christmas holiday. Yeah, she had a kind of a slow day at the clinic. Um, she just, she, I guess, helped a couple of clients and did some paperwork in the morning. And she babysat for a client who couldn't find childcare. And then um, she took off for lunch. And it was interesting. Her colleagues said that usually she sat at her desk for lunch. But for some reason this day, I guess it was a slow day. And it was before Christmas. Maybe she wanted to get some shopping done. So she left and went down to the PATH system uh, to a shopper's drug mart. So it's just after 2.30 p.m. that Rosemary boards the elevator and begins her descent into the underground city below Toronto, the PATH system. If you're unfamiliar with the PATH system, it's a network of underground tunnels that stretches on for more than 30 kilometers throughout downtown Toronto. It's basically an underground mall made up of various shops and services. In this particular portion of the underground network that Rosemary ended up in is situated just below Toronto's most densely built area, the financial district where she worked. As this is home to many of Canada's largest financial institutions, the foot traffic in this area is simply breathtaking. It was a Friday, uh, mid-afternoon, um, December 11th, so this would have been a really busy day down there. Tons of people coming and going. Um, rushing around, some people leaving work early um, as it was a Friday and maybe getting some Christmas shopping done. It would have definitely been a busy scene. And lots of, you know, it's a well-heeled crowd, a well-dressed crowd. Um, people are all sort of in the finance community around there. 
after making her way through the hurried swarms of briefcase-carrying business people, at about 10 minutes to 3, Rosemary enters the comparatively slower-paced environment found in the aisles of a shopper's drug mart. What should have been a forgettable moment in an otherwise average day instead changes the lives of everyone connected to this story. Like Rosemary's colleagues, as I mentioned, were perplexed about why she went to that drugstore. There was a closer drugstore. They were all trying to make sense of why this happened to her. We'll never know why she went to that drugstore, probably. Um, Rosemary entered the store just before 3 p.m. She was talking on the phone. She was talking to a friend of hers, congratulating that friend uh, for getting a new job. She was perusing an aisle when, out of nowhere, seemingly, she was stabbed near the neck. And it was just one wound, but it was life-threatening. Her friend on the phone says that she heard, heard Rosemary screaming and said, I've been stabbed, help me. And uh, presumably people rushed to her defense or to, uh, to help her. And then she was taken to hospital. With the staff and the other shoppers in the store likely in a state of shock, it's at 2.55 p.m. that a 911 call is made reporting the attack. Despite only one stab wound, there was considerable damage, and Rosemary was rushed to St. Michael's Hospital to be immediately placed on life support. Shortly after responding to the attack, the police began to hunt for the perpetrator. All they knew about her at this point was what was captured by the store's security camera. As Rosemary lay bleeding in the aisle, a petite, well-dressed woman fled the store. The surveillance photo showed a small woman, petite woman, well-dressed in a business suit, a skirt, and a blazer with, I think, a pink blouse. And she was um, known in the, in the Bay Street business community. People identified her pretty quickly. On December 14th, three days after the stabbing, Toronto police requested the public's help in locating a 40-year-old woman with connections to the financial district named Rohini Bissasar. Now, with Rohini's name and photograph quickly spreading throughout the national press, news consumers were stunned by the story for a variety of reasons. Of course, the well-known location was unexpected. The rumored randomness of the attack was troubling. And then there was Rohini's photo. Being completely honest, she looked a lot more like a supermodel than a murderer. But regardless of the reasons people followed this case so closely, the interest in this case led to people all over Toronto assisting in the manhunt by keeping an eye out for Rohini. She managed to avoid capture for only one day after being named a suspect in the attack. On December 16th, just after 3 p.m., with Rosemary Junor still in critical condition in a hospital, Rohini was arrested, initially facing charges of attempted murder. Now, at this point in the story, the motive behind the attack and overall character of Rohini was still a mystery to those following the case. But the public was about to get its first glimpse of exactly how bizarre this case was going to become. It came in the form of an email that Rohini Bissasar sent a newspaper just minutes before her arrest. The email opens with a plea. Do you know any top professionals in artificial intelligence, biotechnology, nanotechnology, satellites? Maybe military, maybe government. Something has been happening to me and this is not my normal self. I would like to know who and why this is happening. There is either a single person or more responsible. And who and why would be nice to know. I'm sorry about the incidents. I felt the need to be extreme to see if it would work. I would normally not do such a thing. 
So yeah, clearly this story is going to take a strange turn as far as motive goes, but it's also going to take a much darker turn and an altogether more serious one legally. As I mentioned, Rohini was originally charged with attempted murder. But sadly, on December 17th, six days after the stabbing, the charges would be upgraded to murder when Rosemary succumbs to her injuries. To the hundreds of mourners who came to pay their last respects, Rosemary Jr. was known simply as Kim. The 28-year-old lost her life in an unprovoked random attack, a stabbing in the path system that left her family searching for answers. How can you come to terms with something so horrible that has happened here? I don't know what to say. I can't explain. I'm sorry. What was most difficult about this day was the proximity to happiness. Juner got married just months ago. Those who celebrated with her then returned to reflect on her life. I remember seeing the two of them really happy, mm -hmm. uh, dancing. So beautiful. As the hearse arrived, it was Juner's husband who now had the task of ushering his wife's casket past the threshold of her childhood church. She never had a bad bone in her body. She never had anything bad to say about anybody. That's how I wanted to be remembered. In the weeks and months after Rohini's arrest, details of her life have slowly made their way into the public realm. And when compiled, they reveal what seems to be someone slowly spinning out of control. But whatever was happening, it clearly reaches its climax with the attack on Rosemary Junor on December 11th. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction to this episode, in April of 2006, four months after the unprovoked attack, our guest Razel published the results of her months-long investigation into Rohini's life in what's now a widely shared Toronto Life article called What Happened to Rohini Bissesser. A lot of the article presented brand new information to the public, especially so the information concerning Rohini's childhood and family life. Her childhood was very tricky to report. Um, her family refused to talk to the media, and for good reason. I went to her old school, her high school. I searched yearbooks. I looked online. I looked at, just did whatever I could. And it was interesting to me and kind of sad to see that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't in any clubs or on any sports teams, in any photos I could see. She didn't appear in any pictures like you know kids palling around in the hallway or whatever yearbook pictures there was just nothing I could find I searched probably three yearbooks which she was in and I couldn't find any pictures of her aside from the graduating picture for that year um, I took down the names of some teachers and some classmates and after a really exhaustive search I got in touch with only one person who would actually talk to me and she said she barely remembered Rohini. That was kind of a sad end and it was looking like a dead end for me as a reporter, I guess, until I heard from someone. He, he couldn't tell me much about her anyway, but he did point to a source who he said was a very good person to tell me all about, you know, the last 10 years, Rohini's last 10 years, and that was her ex-boyfriend. Um, it was difficult to get in touch with him. The media were hounding him as well. And then, you know, finally, um, I managed to get in touch with him and, uh, he agreed to speak to me and he, I called him Jeffrey in the article cause he didn't want to have his name published. Um, but he told me all about their time together, 
that to me was more credible than the information I got from him about her childhood because he had told me about these stories and then the person who had told me to talk to him said that this person and who was close to Rohini said this person was very very credible as a you know good source of information about her life so having said all that her childhood I wouldn't say it was happy by the sound of things but that's a difficult I mean, that's my own opinion just from what I've heard. She worked a lot in her parents' store. She w- went to school and was encouraged to get good marks, and she didn't have many friends or much of a social life from what I heard and understood. Um, and she was just kind of a good student and a good kid and did what she was told and came from a fairly strict household, from what I can tell. And then... According to her ex, apparently she ran away around age 14. It seems like she was rebelling a bit at that point. And then when she was brought back to her house, the story she told Jeffrey, and he said that she was really upset about it, and she repeated the story many times over their relationship. So he believed it, and he said that she was put through some sort of folk healing ritual, you know, to cleanse her. You know, who knows why, but... You know, if she was dealing with a mental illness, it could have been that her parents didn't understand and were, you know, just trying to do whatever they could to help her. And so, you know, she was put through this cleansing ritual, apparently had some chicken blood poured on her. And um, she, he says that she, she, it was a very disturbing incident for her and something that sort of set her mind against her parents or made her rebel more against her parents, I guess. The next sort of revelation was a more fulsome explanation of Rohini Bissasar's connection to Toronto's financial district. So she started out at York University as a computer programmer. Um, She was completing her MBA while she worked there, and she wanted to get into the financial community. Once she completed her MBA, she just started peppering firms with her resume and um, just worked really, really hard networking and tried to find a job. After landing a job and beginning a career with many ups and downs, Rohini would arrive at her last stable job in the financial sector with a company named GMP. She started with them in 2010, five years prior to the attack at Shoppers Drug Mart. Some of the interpersonal issues she had during her time on this job could be perceived as symptoms of a worsening mental health issue. GMP is a really well-known firm on Bay Street dealing with mining stocks. So it was a good job for her to get, and it was a, but it was a junior job. It was very junior. They're not, uh, you know, they're not high ballers yet. And uh, so she was um, working under an analyst with three other junior analysts. And from what I understand in that community, it's, it's very clear that if you're junior, you do what you're told, you do your time, and then Hopefully, you can show your talents and um, you'll get promoted at some point in the future. But from, you know, the people who she worked with who spoke to me said that she was very ambitious, which is a great quality, but she was highly, highly critical openly of her analyst that she worked under. And that's really not done. It's like being openly critical of your boss in any situation is just a bad idea generally. And she didn't seem to get that. You know, she seemed to continually criticize her boss and also her colleagues. She said that her 
uh, the men that she worked next to were juvenile, and that may be the case. It probably is the case, but, and Jeffrey said, like, she would come home uh, really upset about, you know, how she couldn't concentrate because these guys were always cracking jokes with each other, and they were talking too loud, and, you know, she didn't, she seemed very fragile, is how somebody who worked with her there said she just couldn't seem to take that usual banter and um, of an office environment, especially in the financial district, it can be kind of like a fraternity, I guess, and she, she couldn't really take it. So, And at the same time, she was going home and telling Jeffrey stuff that sounded to him like increasingly paranoid, but he didn't really know how to deal with it, and he didn't recognize it as you know a mental illness or any kind of paranoia at the time. And she was wondering if nanotechnology can control people's thoughts, and uh, but when he asked her whose thoughts are you talking about, you know, are you thinking this is happening to you? She wouldn't answer him. She was just sort of talking in theory about this and wondering about it. And he just thought it was really odd. He, he just kind of chalked it up to stress. And it's difficult to, to see when you really love someone, you care about someone, you've been in a relationship um, and they, they start changing. It's pretty subtle, I think. Um, he said she she was definitely starting to spiral, though, like the stress of her GMP job and, you know, the noise of her office environment was getting to her. So I think she lost that job about, like, less than a year after she got it. After losing her job at GMP, the downward spiral she was on brought her deeper into dysfunction. With the loss of employment, Rohini would begin looking for a new role in the financial sector. But this was no typical job search. Rohini's life would become driven by an obsessive, disorganized, frantic, and all-consuming job search. She started looking for another job, and her job search became, from what he was describing, Jeffrey described it as a a, a very frenzied, uh, focused job search. Like she would spend hours and hours and all night looking for work filling out application forms online and she would ask him to fill out application forms while she was filling out application forms so she could get more application forms filled out. The job hunt became an all-consuming job on its own. And at the same time, she began craving isolation and asking, you know, Jeffrey to, it started with like, you know, if he would tidy up their apartment, got really, really, really messy. He said it looked like a hoarder's basement in there and he would try to tidy up and she would tell him to stop because it was too distracting for her. So fruit peels would pile up and, you know, he said it was just disgusting. He just tried to spend as much time out of the apartment as he could. And that was easy to do because he had just gotten a good job, again, entry level. So he wasn't making a ton of money. And by this time she was out of work. So the two of them, you know, were never working at the same time. And also like, he did feel a certain obligation toward her, even though, you know, she was becoming more difficult to live with and more difficult to be in a relationship with, I would I would imagine. Um, he, he felt, you know, a real commitment to her because she had supported him all those years when he was a student and when he was kind of lost and floating around and everything and trying to find his way, like she, she told him to, you know, get his act together, whatever, and he and she supported him for years financially and every in every way. So he really felt committed to her. And um, so while she was craving this isolation, for me, this detail, I'll never forget it. It was 
heartbreaking. Like he went out to Home Depot and bought material to make a cubicle for her. So he effectively built an office for her, like a room that she could have in in the apartment so she wouldn't be distracted. And I just thought that right there showed his devotion to her and his love for her. So it must have been a real tragedy to watch her spiraling out. In fall of 2013, two years prior to the attack, Rohini would experience another major life change. Rohini's disorganized state of perpetual job searching becomes too much for her live-in boyfriend, who we're calling Jeffrey, and the pair would split up. This breakup would force Rohini to return to a place she's said to be less than comfortable, her parents' house. And this change in living arrangements would set the scene for what is thought to be Rohini's first interaction with mental health treatment. The details of what actually occur are foggy, but some type of violent incident occurs in the parents' home. This was an outburst that had happened in her home and um, like an incident where she damaged a door in her home occurred and because of that incident she was taken into, um, she was put into treatment um, in a mental health facility. Although the details surrounding the incident and the damaged door are a source of speculation, whatever happened was significant enough to land Rohini in treatment. If we're questioning if Rohini suffers a mental health problem, her now ex-boyfriend Jeffrey is said to have noticed a tremendous difference in Rohini's behavior while in the hospital and under the care of the physicians. According to Jeffrey, um, he said that she greatly improved with treatment. He said he could finally have a conversation with her that made sense. It was like a long time since he'd had a conversation with her. He said that that she wasn't like trying to, you know, get him to fill out application forms or whatever. She wasn't saying things that sounded to him like they were paranoid. And, um, you know, she they had a very real moment. And I think he said it was it was really um a big eye-opener and obviously made a huge impact on him that he thought, well, it could have been like this for a long, much longer time and, oh, this is what was going on with her. Finally, he had some answers. So, um, you know, that was that was a touching scene that he described to me, I think, when he just laid down with her and held her hand and felt really close to her while she was in the hospital, you know, um, receiving treatment. After receiving treatment for her mental illness, Rohini's life found its way back on track and she even landed a job in line with her professional training. But sadly, Rohini's time receiving treatment was brief and for reasons all her own, she decided to discontinue her medication. Not surprisingly, as the treatment ended, the symptoms returned and again, Rohini's life spiraled back into one consumed by an all-encompassing, disorganized job search. But unlike prior to her treatment, this time she wouldn't have the shelter of Jeffrey's homemade cubicle to contain her bizarre mission, and she would end up homeless for all intents and purposes. Based on conversations that I've had with you know people who were in the Bay Street community and would see her, she was basically wandering around um, in the financial district uh, homeless, and nobody figured it out. Um, Except there was some like some, so she would go to a gym where she had a membership. I'm I'm not sure who had bought her the membership or if it was just something she had from you know that hadn't expired yet or whatever. But she still had a membership at a gym and she wouldn't go there to work out, but she would go there to sometimes nap and shower and maybe be on her laptop. And she would go to a uh, Starbucks 
and hang out there, but only order hot water for the whole day. She'd sit there with hot water. And she would try to talk to um, men who looked like they were in positions of power, women who looked like they were in positions of power, people she could network with, people who were, you know, well-dressed in suits and ties. She was just sort of trying to give her resume and trying to find some job still. Um, Her job search was, as I mentioned, all-consuming at this point. And, um, and of course, I mean, that does make sense whether she's mentally ill or not. It makes sense because if you need a place to live and you're, you need a job, you're going to, you know, if you're homeless, especially, and you're, you have an MBA and you're trying to find work, well, you're going to do everything you can to find it. So, um, but yeah, she was seen in restaurants and cafes and gyms in a gym in the financial district and just moving from one place to the next with them um, uh, and, and being homeless. Now, despite the state of homelessness you just heard described, Rohini maintained the appearance one would expect from a member of Toronto's financial community. But for those who knew Rohini, there were many signs that things weren't going well. One of them, and one of the most glaring, was a strange email she sent to her acquaintances. What you're about to hear is a reading of an email Rohini sent in March of 2015 nine months prior to the attack on Rosemary Junior. This message, in which Rohini requests donations to fund her job search, was sent while she was living in that state of homelessness you just heard described. I have utilized all my funds pursuing my dream job and now need help to continue in that pursuit. I'm trying a new approach to fund that pursuit. I'm asking all my friends to contribute, if they can and wish to, the nominations of one, two, five, ten, twenty, fifty, or a hundred dollars. I suggest such figures as I know that the Royal Canadian Mint produces currencies in such denominations. Hence, it will be an easy contribution. Anything less than one dollar might not allow me to achieve my goals in a timely fashion. My goal is to simply ensure I have basic necessities. Food, water, shelter, clothing, and products for hygiene and beauty, while I continue to secure an appropriate role in an appropriate organization, firm, or entity. Thank you kindly for considering providing help such that I continue to pursue my ideal job. I look forward to hearing from you soon. Now, In the months leading up to the attack at the Shoppers Drug Mart, Rohini was living this same strange lifestyle, homeless, bouncing between fitness center bathrooms and local cafes, burdened by an obsessive search for employment. It's at this point in the timeline of Rohini's life that we get to the violent and unprovoked attack on Rosemary Junor that would lead to Rohini Bissessart's name being known across Toronto. While news of the alleged attack has rattled people in the busy financial district, police say Bissessar is known to spend time there. Physically, she's, uh, she's tiny. She might be five foot one in heels, and uh, I'd, I'd be exaggerating if, she, if I said she weighed 90 pounds. Investigators are urging Bissessar to turn herself in. At this point in our narrative, we're largely caught up with what was the present day at the time of this episode's original production. However, Rohini's strange story continued to unfold behind a courtroom's closed doors. In an upcoming episode, I'm going to share the updated version of my prior episode covering Rohini's trial, her defense, the controversial verdict, and where it all stands today, eight years later. 
Now, before we start wrapping things up, I wanted to share some additional portions of my discussion with Razel. As you should be able to tell by this point, her investigation into Rohini's life and the crime she's been charged with has been incredibly thorough. During her investigation, she didn't only speak with those who knew Rohini. She met with her in prison. I went to meet her just uh, on the ho- in the hopes that she would meet with me. And it's interesting because in that prison, um, you can go and do that. And that should be the way it is. You know, you can just walk in and you have to, you know, arrange the appointment the day before or something. But then if the prisoner wants to see you, they can just come and see you. And if they don't, they don't come and see you. So I said my name and who I was and um, mentioned what I was doing. And um, I, I told her everything, I, what I was, you know, art, what the article was about and um, just telling her story. And I told her some things that I had learned and whether she, I wanted to ask, give her the opportunity to confirm or, you know, or deny some of those um, facts. And I didn't think that would really jeopardize her trial at all if she just confirmed, you know, I went to this school and I, you know, those sorts of things. But she just was very, very cautious about what she could say and what she wanted to say. So she really didn't say much. I mean, we sat there for about 45 minutes together. Um, she came in, she's very tiny and she didn't look as presentable as she did, well, I guess, when she was uh, in the photos, the mugshots and the photos that you see on, in, in the media that were re- released. She looked like a woman in jail. She did not look, you know, her best. Um, she had sort of um, hair that was, I guess, fairly unkempt, and then she was um, wearing just a green prison-issue sweatshirt, she was very small, and um, she had maybe what looked like some scars on her face or some injuries on her face, and it wasn't clear what was going on there. She didn't talk about them. Um, and she just kind of, I guess, we just sat there, and, and I, I tried to get her to talk about, just to confirm a few facts that I had um I had found, and um, she she just kept repeating that she can't, she has to get advice from her lawyer, and I said, okay, and she could leave at any time, and she chose not to, so my feeling there was that she just wanted some company, and she wanted an ally, and um, yeah, that was about it for our meeting. After hearing that Razel had the opportunity to connect with Rohini Bissasar in this way, I couldn't help but ask if they've been in contact since. When I was reporting the story, I left my phone number so that she could call me from prison if she wanted to change her mind and, you know, confirm some things or tell me anything. And and this was also, at the time, like, she had fired her lawyer eventually, and she, she kept cycling through things. like So I, you know, I thought it was probably fair for me to get that phone number to her and she could have, you know, an outlet anytime she wanted it. In any case, she never did contact me until well after the article was published, probably six months or a year. It was probably a year afterwards. And I, I think it was by the time that she received a treatment at a um, mental health facility that she was able to contact me. And that's only my assumption because she wouldn't tell me where she was, but she was able to make a phone call. And, um, you know, it, and it, when she made the phone call, you uh, it wasn't collect. It was just a straight up call. And usually if they're calling from prison, it's always collect, right? So I assume that she was not in prison at that point, that she was probably in another facility. But um, yeah, so and it was around the time when when um, she was 
being ordered for treatment. So she just wanted to make contact and really tell the story the way she sees it. And um, I can't really tell you, I don't really feel comfortable giving any information about what she said exactly because anything can affect her trial. I want to thank you for joining me for this episode of Nighttime. To any of the loved ones of Miss Bissasar or Mrs. Junor who happen to listen, I want to offer my sincerest condolences for the unimaginable situation you're in. And if you feel like contacting me and sharing your story, I'd be happy to hear from you. Now I'm going to start wrapping up this episode, but before we part, let me end with some thanks. First, a big thanks to Razel Robin for being so generous with her time and sharing her amazing reporting with the listeners of the show. A big shout out to Monty Data, who contributes the music for this episode, and LJ from the Dystopian Simulation Podcast, who provides the intro and outro voiceovers. And then lastly, but most importantly, I have a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. Now on the topic of support, let me thank the newest subscribers to the premium feed. Timothy, Keegan, and Dave, I appreciate you. And for anyone else who'd like to support the show, you can help us out here in a variety of ways. First of all, a premium feed subscription costs just a couple dollars a month, and that money funds the creation of the show. But perhaps even better, the premium feed gives you the episodes two days early, gives them to you ad-free, and gives you access to a full back catalog of nighttime episodes. If that sounds like something you're interested in, you can go premium right now at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And even if you don't want to go premium, you can still support the show by simply sharing this episode on social media and letting all your like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If anyone listening has any story ideas, wants to give feedback on the show, or would like to submit a question or comment to be aired and responded to in an upcoming episode, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com. I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.